I'd love to hear a little bit about the musical background of your childhood. Did you always know you wanted to be a cello teacher when you grew up? Tell us about what that was like for you. I am the child of two musicians. My parents are both, they both have bachelor's degrees in music education. And my mom also went on and did a master's in flute performance. And my dad did some master's work as a clarinetist and actually got into the doctoral program at Indiana University for um, doctoral studies. But, um, you know, life, life has a way of happening. And so he ended up not pursuing that, thinking probably that wasn't the most secure way to provide for a family. And so he made a career change and became an insurance agent. And so it's funny because my dad was an insurance agent for his whole professional life, but in his heart, he is totally a musician. <laughs> and so um, as far as my childhood goes, my mom taught piano lessons when we were young. She had upwards of 38 students. I mean, while we were school-aged kids. And my dad and my mom both did everything they could to get us to lessons and invest in good teachers. And um, a few years we had season tickets to the ballet and we went to the symphony concerts all the time. And we our next door neighbors um, have, who lived next to us for a time um, ran a choir, a professional choir. And so we were big fans and we'd go to our next door neighbor's concerts and they performed at First Presbyterian Church downtown. So they had this beautiful venue to perform at. And my the, the woman had a DMA in piano. And so she my next door neighbor was this collaborative pianist who was amazing. So when I was playing Brahms Sonata, she could just like walk over next door and play on my mom's Steinway. So, you know, my, my parents really invested in super high quality music experiences for us. And, you know, over time, um, we all, uh, there are three children in my family. I'm the middle of three. And we all took piano lessons to begin. And then my parents were very smart. And they said, if you stick with piano, then you can earn the privilege of choosing your second instrument, <laughs> which of course is a sneaky way of getting us to play another instrument. But because they made it our choice, then we were very excited about it. So my, my sister tried flute for a while and did that like in the junior high band. My brother played clarinet for a while. Um, but as we grew older and became teenagers you know your interests start to kind of crystallize and my sister went the way of being a dancer and she became a physical therapist and my brother became an athlete and he did every athlete sorry he did every sport under the sun and um now is a businessman so as of the three of us i'm the only professional musician in the family but um we all had that rich musical experience and i think that um i watched my mom teach and i watched the meaning that came to the lives of her students and how much they loved her, you know? And um, I also saw that it was really hard work. And so actually a lot of the ways that I run my studio um, are informed by the, the difficulties I saw my mom work with because she was such a kind, caring person that sometimes she didn't hold the um, um, boundaries and policies that would have protected her from getting burned out or taking advantage of, you know? So... But I did see that it was a meaningful um, life and I did see that she brought good things to people's lives. And I did see that um, people's lives were changed for the better because of her influence. Um, and so I thought, I think that's interesting to me. <laughs> and I always have been a teacher. I was the friend who people would call for math homework help and science homework help and so from a, a young age as a school-aged kid, I was always happy to help people 
um, figure things out and succeed. And then I also, as I was going through and becoming a teenager, the interests that crystallized for me were music. That was the place I felt the safest. Those are the friends I felt the closest to. That was the thing I was the most excited about going to in my week. I can remember when I was in um, sixth grade, I was in dance and I was in extracurricular orchestra and I was, you know, doing like honors classes at school. But always the thing I was most excited for was Friday afternoon when I got to rehearse with my quartet (laughs) because they were the ones that I had the most fun with and I felt like the most myself with. And so I kind of followed that through and started making choices. And when it came time to register for dance class in seventh grade, I was like, mom, I don't, I don't really... I kind of don't really want to. And she's like, that's okay. Um, Because, you know, when you become a teenager, that's when you're supposed to start making those choices and kind of weeding things out and not doing everything. So it just, it's a a natural progression for me. It's not like I was a young kid and was like, I'm going to be a teacher and that's how I'm going to change the world. But I just followed those things that made me the most happy and made me feel the most like myself. And it was the combination of music and teaching. And so that's how I find myself where I am today. I love it. I love it. So do you still um, play piano? I do. So I did Suzuki Piano Method and got through book three, which is not very exciting. I mean, I can't even play a Bach invention. Okay. Um, And there, I wish, oh, how many times have we heard this as adult teachers, right? I wish I had stuck with it for one more Suzuki book because there's a super cool piece in Suzuki book four that I really wish I could have learned. And you know, that's just, I should go learn it right now this year and make that a goal. (laughs) But um, so I have enough skills to do like really well in my music theory classes in college. Um, I can play the Bach chorales fine, you know. Um, And what, where I really actually grew my skill was when my younger daughter started playing violin, I would practice at the piano with her. And we started with Suzuki book one there as well. So of course the pieces, the accompaniments are very, very simple. And I would practice with her every day. And then as she would add a piece, I would also add the piece. And so, you know, what's funny, Ariel, is if you practice a little every day, you actually get better. (laughs) It's a very funny thing, right? It actually works. So I can, I can play the piano well enough to accompany my own students through um, the very beginning sonatas. So like I can handle a a Vivaldi sonata on the piano, which can be very helpful in lessons with my students. And so I do, um, yeah, I would say I'm a, an adequate pianist, certainly sufficient for my needs in my own studio, and it can be very helpful. So. Very cool. That's very cool. Um, one thing I'm super excited to talk to you about is your book. Oh, this will help you grow. Uh, I have devoured it. I reread it again. Um, and uh, it's there's so many good things there. I would love for you to tell us about how you chose that title, what it means to you. Um, it feels very significant. So I'd love to hear where that came from for you. Well, thank you for asking. It is significant because um, language, I feel like, has an a great power over us as human beings. And I think we'll probably talk about that later in our discussion too. But yeah, I was very purposeful about this title. It actually comes from a phrase that my daughter's violin teacher would use all the time. And she would specifically use it when she was giving a giant assignment (laughs) that you just felt like it was impossible. And she would do that all the time. She was so wonderful about 
building you up bit by bit. And I should say building the student up bit by bit, but she did it for the parents too. And so that you, your skill was growing and then she would at the right moment, give you this task that felt absolutely impossible, but you could trust that because she guided you step-by-step step, that, that she believed in your ability to do the big thing. And so um, I, she used that all the time. And so it became kind of this running joke between me and some of my other friends who were also parents in the studio. So when something huge was asked of us, we'd be like, well, this will help us grow. <laughs> so when I decided to um, put this book together, I actually reached out to her and asked for her permission because it's such a signature phrase for this particular teacher. And she, without any hesitation said, absolutely go right ahead. That would be wonderful. And she didn't ask for any kind of paper back for it at all. And so it's um, a way of honoring her legacy and what she taught me, both as a parent and as a teacher. Um, it's a way of realizing that the big asks um, are not meant to defeat us, but to expand us. And that if you look at all of any big thing that, that feels like hard or difficult or insurmountable, Maybe if, you, if we stop looking at what the end task is gonna be and start looking about what reaching for that task will do for us, then we have the confidence to try. So I'm, I know that I can grow, even if I might not get exactly the end result, I might, might feel bad that I don't get that, but on my way to that result, I'm going to grow as a person, as a cellist, as a teacher, and that's worth trying. Does that make sense? Wow, that's so powerful. Um, my yoga background, there's a phrase I love that says the prize is the process. And that's what it sounds like she instilled. It's, it's safe to try because the process of trying will grow you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And then when you focus on the growth, which is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Infinite. Growth is infinite, but an end result is finite. So if you focus on the growth, then you have limitless possibilities. And I mean, isn't that what we want to give our students, right? Instead of like some limit imposed on them, we want to give them, hey, the sky's the limit and, and you can keep going and you can keep growing. So it it's kind of goes to that. Wow, I love that. Um, it made me think of, uh, as I was reading it and knowing you, made me think of the growth mindset. Is that something that you're familiar with or have learned about and you use in your teaching, it sounds like um, your daughter's violin teacher just naturally knew that somehow or just working with children had picked that up. Yeah, it, it is really important to me. And I have learned how to move towards their growth mindset away, away from results and towards growth. I've really had to intentionally make that shift as a teacher. Um, and I was really fortunate that I was guided by my daughter's violin teacher, because yes, this is something that she really does foster in her studio. And I think it's a result of her own openness. I think it's a result of her own life experience. And I think, I mean, she's been teaching for four or five decades. So she's seen everything under the sun. You know what I'm saying? And um, so for um, so she's seen it all, and she also studied education. Um, she has background in formal studies of education. So she brought all of that to her studio, and I could see what happened when you approach teaching with openness. And then I just feel like you create the space for the child to bloom. 
and they can just get bigger and they are not inhibited. And um, she was just such a master at making room for growth. I found that that was more healthy for the growth of a child than focusing on results or assignments or tasks or something that's measurable, which isn't to say that we can't have measurable things, right? It, you can say, try this 10 times or this, uh, you have to be at this metronome marking. You can still have concrete assignments. That's true. You have to balance it out. But just kind of in general in the way she would talk to students and the way she would approach assignments was like, there's room for more. <laughs> and I just saw the way my own daughter opened up in that environment, which was different from the way I was parenting at the time too. So it really, um, and I saw how my daughter was like softer and more curious and more open and more willing to try in her violin lessons than she was at home. So then when I tried to implement this as a parent, I could see the change happen in our home too. So when I, as I was rereading your book, um, uh, in the introduction, you say, you start off by saying, don't take my advice. And I love that. It's so, it seems so hard to wrap your head around, but tell us about why you say at the beginning of a book about how this advice will help you grow. So the source of that quote is when I was being honored with a baby shower for my first child, I was, you know, everyone would give me a gift. And then as they gave me a gift, they would give me some advice. And I, I was just the kind of person that's like, give it all to me. I'll write it down. I'll do all the things. I'll follow through. Give me a plan. I'll, may, I'll be successful. And my brother-in-law, who at the time was a father of three, but is now a father of seven, um, he said to me, my advice is to don't take anybody's advice. And I was like, what? I'm sorry, what? My brain literally cracked. And I was like a little mad at him. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? All these people have amazing things and they're sharing wisdom and they're sharing things that I don't know because I haven't been through this, you know. But his point was, and he clarified for me too at that time, he was like, yeah, listen to everybody and, and write it down and hear what their experience is. And, you know, um, you can listen to what their stories are. But at the end of the day, nobody is me and no one else is my child and nobody will ever know what my relationship is with my child because it's me and my child and so I what I my job is to collect all the information that I can and learn as much as I can and then synthesize that into my own experience and trust what my own intuition is leading me how to do and this has been very empowering for me it's a little scary at first to take this approach because then you're, it's like saying, well, what do I have to reinvent the wheel? <laughs> do I have to start from square one? Um, but no, you don't. You can use your village and look at, you know, you can say, for example, when it comes to parenting, well, my child's not sleeping through the night. Well, ask five parents and see what they did when their kid was not sleeping through the night. But then take into account well, your temperament and your child's temperament, and then choose one of those things that might fit best for you or tailor that to your own experience. And so that's, I found that to be really, really helpful. That's my approach in parenting. And I'm finding that too, that when I use it in teaching, it's helpful too, that I can research and study and collect all the information that there is out there. And there's a lot, right? Especially in our community, teachers are so willing to share their ideas but at the end of the day, I am me. I am not another teacher. And this child in front of me is 
their own self and they're not somebody else. And so I have to trust that I can use my own intuition and wisdom to tailor those other approaches for our own, um, for our own situation. So it does mean learning from others, but it means making the decision myself and not outsourcing that decision to somebody else, um, but taking the responsibility for the decision and following through with it. That's so powerful. I think, especially as young teachers, it can be hard to trust that what we have is valuable. And it sounds like it's also connected to your daughter's teacher in creating space for her to grow, trusting that you will grow into something beautiful. Absolutely. And the thing is, the more you practice tuning into your own, whatever you want to call intuition or voice or inclination, the more you make decisions based on that, the better you get at it and the more of yourself you become. So the better you are at giving your gifts to the world. So if I always make choices based on what somebody else did, then I don't put my own stamp on it. That's not letting my gifts show. That's letting someone else's gifts come out through me, which is going to both make my gifts suffer and their gifts less. So if every time I practice making a decision, and I mean, we're musicians, Ariel, we know what practice is about. It's not going to be perfect the first time, right? In fact, it won't be perfect for many thousands of times, but it's not going to be great unless I practice those thousands of times and give myself grace for what I learned through the mistakes. So that's how I've learned to really just, I've just done it, like made the decisions and totally messed up and then been like, that didn't work. I'll try another way. (laughs) But then I know from my, that I know that was my decision. And so I get to choose how to move forward instead of thinking that somebody else's way has to work for me. And that growth happened. Like this also helped you grow. So it's not wasted. Absolutely. I love that idea that it, even a mistake is not wasted if you use it for your growth. In your book, you talk about the core or the center of who you are following your intuition or your guts. And these are things I've heard my teachers talk about in the past as well. Do you have any advice, what you would say, this is how you grow that relationship. Uh, this is how you can um, tell that it's growing. What could a young teacher do or any teacher that wants to grow that connection to center and intuition? I love this question so much. And as I was thinking about it um, and preparing for our discussion today, I thought, you know, we do talk about our core. And then I, so last night I thought to myself, well, what is in our core? Well, our heart is one thing that's in our core. And so what does our heart do? It makes us feel love. It pumps us up. It like pushes things through us. And so, you know, how do you connect to your heart? Well, that's by following the things that you love. Like what's something that makes you feel love? That is helping you connect to your heart. Move towards that. What's something that gets you like pumped up or like gives you life or like energy? You know, like after a really great run or a great yoga practice, your heart's like beating and you're like, yes, I feel alive. So in your own life, what makes you feel alive, right? Um, And I... So I keep coming back to this. I've been teaching a long time. And sometimes when I have a break from teaching, I think, gosh, can I even go back? It was really nice to, <laughs> to have some free time. <laughs> so, okay, I'm just speaking candidly here. I don't know how else to talk. I have to be honest. 
And then I found I, I this re happened to me recently. I came back to teaching um, on Thursday after a week off and I had seven students and Wednesday night I was like seven in a row. That's a long block. What am I going to do? And I'm telling you that after those seven students in a row, I felt alive in the same way that I feel after a really great hike or a really great run. And I thought, I need to keep going this direction because it's what makes me feel alive. It's what's connecting to my heart, right? There's another part of us that's in our gut or in our core and that's our gut. So you think about what nourishes you, what's delicious or what makes you feel butterflies and gets you excited, right? So move that direction. So I, in my own life, something that really nourishes me um, probably top is relationships, healthy relationships and meaningful relationships where people feel safe to be who they are um, and feel supported and are, you know, in that beautiful balance of I accept you for who you are and I can help you be the even better version of yourself. Like those relationships just make me feel nourished. And so this is something that I can really do in my own teaching and I can make choices in my studio that nourish relationships. And so we may talk about these later, but you know, group class is super important for me. And it's not just about, okay, let's like play some music together and go home. I'm gonna think, how can I create activities and experiences that let the children nourish relationships with each other? How do I help nourish their empathy and their connection so that they have this safe relationship with peers? And then when I'm doing that and I'm creating that energy in the group, I look out and I see the parents watching us and they see what's happening and they see how their children feel safe and feel curious and feel confident to try when they're in a safe place. And so then the, the parents are noticing that and they can take that back to their own homes. So I know that in my own work as the human being, I am helping foster healthy relationships in families. And I'm telling you, that makes me feel alive. That makes me feel so happy. And that is not what every person is doing in their studio. And that's okay. But that is something that like nourishes me. And so I make choices in my teaching to um, create experiences and have discussions and things about relationships because that, that helps me feel, feel nourished and, and excited. So when it comes to connecting with your core, that seems like you're right, a rather abstract idea. But when I broke it down into this, okay, well, I've got my heart and my core. So what do I love? And I'm going to move that direction. And then I have my gut in my core. So what feels nourishing to me or what makes me feel excited, like butterflies in my stomach, I'm going to move in that direction and make choices that just take me there, like one step at a time. Have there been going back to this idea of growth mindset, and this will help you grow, even if it didn't go well, have there been times when you've learned what your gut is by not following that. Yes. Oh boy. So when I was a younger teacher, I had this feeling that I needed to teach everybody who reached out to me and I needed to teach a billion students in order to be worth my salt, you know, in order to be any kind of worthy teacher, I'd have to have a giant studio and I'd have to say yes to everybody who wanted to study with me. Um, but I have since learned that I, of, of those 
two things. I, I can't teach a huge studio because then I don't have the energy to go deep in the ways that I want to. And so I've had to resign myself to the fact that between 20 and 25 students is the load that I can handle. And now as an, like an older experienced teacher, I'm fine with that. But when I was younger, I used to think that that size of studio was simply that it was not enough that I wasn't a good teacher because I didn't have a giant studio because that meant that not a lot of people wanted to study with me or I wasn't competent enough to do that. And so I would take on more students than was healthy for me. And so I wasn't getting the sleep and the rest and the time to nurture myself as a human being. So um, I've since made that change. And, you know, I try to keep my studio between 20 and 25 so that I feel healthy as a teacher, but also as a human being. And then as a particular um, example, um, quite a few years ago, a family reached out to me and they wanted cello lessons and my instinct said, no way, just don't. And then I thought, oh, why? That's really, that's bad of me to not say yes to them and not give them a chance. Um, but in our, in our interactions, I could tell that there was a different level of commitment and a different energy in the family and like a, a non- openness to growth and a non-willingness to be vulnerable. There was a protection in their hearts and there was a defiance in the way they interacted with me. And so it, my heart and my instinct said, don't teach this family. It won't work. But I said, well, I should anyway, because whatever. So I took the student on and long story short, it was years and years and years of heartache. And um, of being disrespected, of them coming late, of them not preparing and not practicing and, you know, not progressing at a, a rate that was meaningful for the student. I mean, all teachers know that if the kid doesn't progress at least some way, then they're not going to be motivated. And then lessons just become miserable because they're just reinforcing the fact that you're like falling behind and not progressing. And that, that feels shameful, right? If we can't find some way to help them progress. And then they would bring the, the toddler sibling who threw applesauce packets around my studio. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, so that was, I was just absolutely depleted and exhausted after every lesson with this particular student. And um, we finally had the conversation after too many years that, you know, it just wasn't a good fit. And so we, they moved on to another teacher that was a better fit for them. And um, yeah, so that was an experience where my instinct said, don't do that. It's not the right decision, but I went ahead and did it. And I, uh, I think there was more suffering that came about it than there needed to have been. I certainly learned a lot from it. So I, you know, I can't say I regret it but I kind of do regret it. <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, that's just one experience. I know I've had dozens, but that's the one that stands out to me. And so I've learned to be like, no, it's okay to, to trust my intuition. And, you know, if I get a feeling or if I have some kind of nudge about something, I'm more likely to follow through because of the heartache and the shame and the struggle from that one particular situation. So perhaps as a young teacher, knowing you have the permission to trust yourself and like that initial, I don't think this is going to work out rather than feeling like you ought to do something out of duty or caring for all of the children. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that is just, you've crystallized it. That's exactly right. Something that seems to tie in here, you talk about um, 
being the creators of our own lives and connecting our choices to the decisions that we've made, how there's a cause and effect relationship. So we have power to change the situation we're in or the studio that we've created by the choices we make. And I would love to hear, it seems related to this ability to connect to your center and to your gut, what you value. Uh, how does how is this applied as you've created your studio? What can someone do? What changes can they make to create that space that is then nurturing them and their students? Yeah, great question. And I feel like I need to say something here um, that I didn't initially thought of, but it's coming to me now. So I'm, I'm going to model listening to my intuition right now. I have a really great friend who um, is also a music parent with me. Our daughter started violin lessons in the same month. Okay. So these cute little three-year-olds have been playing together forever. Um, and she, a few years ago, she was going through some difficulties in her family life and she was doing some reading and researching and all these things. And we had a long conversation about it. And she said to me, I can't directly change the actions of my family members. I can only change myself. But I have found that as I make authentic and lasting changes in myself, the effects ripple out to my family. And I can see the effects of my personal changes after about five years. <laughs> so that seems very daunting to be that long of a time but it also um is very freeing because if you try to change other people you will just be dissatisfied because it doesn't happen like true change has to come from within so if you if you work on your own personal inner change first of all you're modeling how that it's done and second of all, you can free your efforts up from trying to control other people, which won't make change. It will just make control, but it won't make change. And so anyway, you can free up the efforts from trying to control someone into like actually investing in your own personal change. Then those effects will ripple out long term and you have to stick with it. But again, this is where we're awesome as musicians. We know the, the effects of long term practice. If, if I said to you, this will take you five years, you know, like, okay, we're going to start playing cello today. In five years, you're going to be playing Vivaldi Sonata and Concertos. That's like amazing, right? And you're like, is that even possible? Yeah, it's totally possible with a little bit of practice every day. And so all this to say, have a long-term idea of what your studio is going to be. Like, don't expect that tomorrow it's going to be exactly what you want. Besides, honestly, do you, it, what you want will unfold as you go along. <laughs> but it is a good idea to have a vision, like a long-term vision of what you want your studio to be, and then invest in the personal work that you can do now so that you free yourself up and that you also model personal work and that change that can happen. As far as specific actions that um, young teachers can take, you can write a mission statement that informs why you do what you do. Like, it's sometimes good to be like, okay, what the, why am I doing this? Like, is there something that's motivating me that bigger than just like, I mean, is your mission statement, I hope all of my kids learn scales. I hope not. <laughs> I hope it's something bigger than that, you know? And then you you use that as your, your North Star, as your guiding light for making decisions as you move forward. 
write a vision for yourself that includes near future, distant future, and dreams. Okay, those three categories so that you can remember what you think is possible for yourself while you're in the day-to-day, -day, um, the dregs, right, of doing the work. I'm doing this, I'm laying one brick at a time because I know a cathedral is possible, right? But it has to be a brick at a time. But I have that vision of what that cathedral can be. So I'm willing to lay the brick. And then I think it's very important to find time to reflect. You could do it once a year, you could do it once every six months or something, but it's really important to take time to reflect on the growth that you've seen and to mark it somehow. You can do this for yourself. You can write, like, you could write a letter to yourself today. You could write one to your past self and say, look how far you've come. Look at the growth that I've seen. Or you can even just make a list. You don't have to do it all, you know, <laughs> sentimentally. <laughs> you can if you want. But another way you can do it is you can write a thank you note to your studio families. I'll tell you, nothing softens a heart and makes it ready for growth more than gratitude. And if you can write a note, you know, an individual note, I did this at my fall recital in November. I wrote every student a personal handwritten thank you note that said, thank you for letting me be your teacher. I've enjoyed watching the way you grew in this particular way this year. And I can't wait to see what next year brings us. I mean, it's a three sentence note card. It took me maybe half an hour to do all 25, but then they have this, and I in my own heart too, by the way have this clear acknowledgement of the growth that is happening right in front of our eyes. I really think that that can be a really helpful way is to take time to notice the growth that is happening. Because here's the thing, if you want to be growing, you are growing. <laughs> I promise you, like if you want to, then it's happening. And however small, it's there. And so part of the invitation I'm, I'm extending here is to notice what's already going well and what you're already doing that's that's beautiful meaningful and going in the right direction and then focus on that and that will just keep expanding you know so it's recognizing you you mentioned i love i'm i'm still thinking about this comment you made about your daughter's violin teacher how she had built this rapport of trust that your daughter knew when she said this will help you grow it would be a challenge and it would be possible so it sounds like you're saying you have to look back and recognize how you have grown as you embark on a big challenge. Definitely, because if you have seen how you've grown, then you know you can still grow. You talk about practice makes patterns. So in this idea of creating a studio in big picture practicing, what have you put into practice to create the patterns and the structure of your studio that have supported your studio? I think one of the most helpful practices, and I started this in 2014, was to institute a new set of technique exercises every January. So every January, I hand every student a list of the technique exercises for the year. And we study those in January and we start them in January and through the year, I check on them every single lesson. We start with the technique exercises and then we do our scales and then we do a review piece and then we do their working piece. So in that sentence, I just said, there's actually two things, right? I have a very set lesson flow. 
so that I always know what order things are going to be heard in. And so my students and parents clearly know what I'm going to hear. I'm not going to start a lesson with their newest piece. <laughs> so they know they can't get away with only practicing their newest piece because Miss Brittany's going to hear a lot more stuff before she gets to that in the lesson. So it clearly sends the message that technique, scales, and review are important to me because that's the order that we do them in the lesson. But what's so cool about this particular project is I instituted it because I felt like my students' technique was lacking. And I thought, you know what? We have to do more than just scales and pieces. I need to like flush out our technique. But what, and what happens is in January, when we go over the exercises, they're complicated and they're difficult. And everyone's like, ah, I don't know, right? And then by the time December comes around, it takes us five minutes to get through all the technique because they've mastered it over 12 months, right? And so then it's the coolest thing because in December I can say, remember in January when this took us more than half the lesson? Remember in January when you didn't know how to read tenor clef? Remember in January when you didn't know how to play double stops? And now you can play it and it's so easy. Look what happens when you just did it over time. And so it's funny because I felt you know, if we're tying this into kind of our, some of our themes we're talking about today, I felt a nudge in 2014 that technique needed to be flushed out. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put in a technique regimen in my studio. We tried it and I saw how everyone grew and I saw how it made my lessons flow really beautifully. And then I saw how it was so easy for everyone in December that, well, gosh, I better give them something new in January. And so then in 2015, I redid the whole thing and then I saw the same pattern happen. And so um, this teaches them specific mastery of specific skills, double stops, cole, shifting, whatever. But it teaches them the broader like macro idea that if you stick with something and put the work in, then in as short as a year, you can totally master something that was just insurmountable in January, you know? So I think that's one structure that I've put in place that's um, really helped me. And then I'll tell you the other structure is every studio teacher should own an abacus. I'm sorry, just go buy one right now, okay? <laughs> because kids learn by doing. They have to do the thing. And it doesn't matter if, if they can report back with their mouth what you told them. If they can't demonstrate at least some kind of growth or understanding for you in the lesson, that it's not going to happen at home in their practice. And so I am I try to be really clear in our lessons when we're working on something and we have a specific goal. So example, let's do something really small, like uh, we're making sure we have the right bowings on measure one. So I'll pull out the abacus and then I'll say, we need to do measure one 10 times with the correct bowings. And so they might play the first time and get it and I'll move a bead, second time and they get it and I'll move a bead. Third time, they don't get it. And I'll say, did you meet your goal? And they can either say yes, like if they know they did, or they can say, I don't know. And I'll say, thank you for the honest answer. Let's just try again. Or they can say, no, I should try again, right? And so the abacus does two things. It ensures many repetitions so that they can take some level of growth home with them from the lesson. And it's also an opportunity to foster self-reflection which is, and self-evaluation, which is the most important thing I think we can um, give our students. And of course that could be a whole 
like series of podcasts about how to foster that and how to balance out our support as teachers with the space to let our students do individual uh, thinking and self-evaluation. But anyway, I found the abacus is a really good way to incorporate that. And again, I do that every lesson with every student and I'm not kidding. <laughs> and so over time, their ability for self-reflection as a whole, as a studio has really grown. And so I can learn to trust them and send them home and do their practice. So I think those are two things that have been really helpful. The technique thing that happens every new year and then using the abacus in lessons. I do love my abacus. <laughs> your, your philosophy I, is so beautiful and you really clearly articulate your belief that teaching is a way to give students a beautiful vehicle with which to discover and then to express themselves. I love that you're showing your students how to connect to their core as you connect to your core. And so it's not an either or, it's not a push pull. And it seems to tie into what you were talking about with this, the abacus as a way to self-reflect. What would you say to a teacher who is struggling to get everything done in a lesson and the idea of also um, teaching a student to discover themselves and connect to themselves? What can they do to foster that and that might actually make getting things done in the lesson easier? Uh, the, the first thing I want to say, I just, I feel really emotional because I want to tell that teacher, you have time. You have time. This is the great gift of being a studio teacher. We are not fourth grade teachers who have to cram a curriculum in in nine months worth of time. Most of us will have a student for many years, sometimes a decade plus. And so this is, I just want to tell young teachers and myself as a young teacher, you have time. And so if you are interested and find it meaningful to help a student discover their core and discover their voice, just keep it in the back of your mind and try practicing doing that once or twice a lesson. Like it doesn't have to be the whole lesson. You can spend time to like talk about the intricacies of vibrato and figure out how to shift. That doesn't have to be this meta conversation about connecting with your core and your voice. You can do that a, a little bit at a time and you do that over time and it will make the difference that you want. Um, as far as a pragmatic way to do that is, one example would be really, really easy is to incorporate imagination into lessons, okay? So um, there's a really great book, which we might talk about later, um, but called Nurture Shock by, I think Poe Bronson is the author and there's another author too. But what I love about this book, it's a parenting book and each chapter is an individual section. So you don't have to read the book cover to cover. You could read the section on sleep if you're interested in sleep. You could read the section on praise if you're interested on language. But there's a section about imagination and they tell the story of some Russian researchers who um, did a research project with students, with young kids. I think they were like first grade age, so rather young. And they told one group of students, stand still as long as you can. And they were able to stand still, I think it was three minutes, okay? Which is, I mean, that's pretty good, right? For a, a little kid. 
And then the other group of students, they said, pretend you're a soldier and you have to stand as still as you can because the enemy is coming. Oh, this is a little bit charged of a story right now because of what's happening in the world. Sorry about that. But those kids, when they imagined they were soldiers, could stay still for 11 minutes, like four times as long. So and when you're asking a child to imagine something, they're naturally tapping into what's already going inside of them, right? So you could say, imagine that you're a soldier, and that gets them to play with more marcato sound or more angled rhythm. Or you could even, if they're a little bit more advanced, you could say, what can you imagine that will give you this kind of feeling? What? And so they might come up with the idea, oh, this could be a soldier, or oh, this is a truck that's like going down the lane or something. So you invite discussions about imagination and creativity in their own way. It can be really fun when they're little. I'll tell you a funny story. Do you, there's a gavotte in C minor in book three, Suzuki Cello, which is actually a G minor gavotte for the piano. So um, pianists and violinists will know from that. But there's three sections. There's a C minor section, there's an E flat major section, there's a G minor section, and then anyway. And so when I was first teaching this and I was trying to tap into uh, my students' emotions, I thought, I want them to play this expressively. So let's tap in here. So I said, this is a song about death. And the C minor section is when someone dies. And the E flat major section is when you have happy memories of them. And the G minor section is when you're mad. And it was like way over the top, or it was like traumatic to talk about death with a little kid, right? That was the wrong approach. And I noticed that it made everybody uncomfortable, parents included, <laughs> right? So here we are having an example of, I have a nudge, an idea of tapping into my students' emotions, but this wasn't successful. And over time, I learned that that's too scary of a topic. So I've changed my story to, this is a story about your very best friend coming to you and telling you they have to move away. And this is how you feel sad. You, I mean, you have lots of feelings when, when someone moves away. And so can you play this section, C minor section, with the sadness you feel about a friend moving away? And then E flat major section. This is how you feel when you're remembering all the fun times you had together. Or maybe I'd even, if they're a very sensitive child, I'd say, this is them coming over for a play date. And what, what do you feel like when you're playing together? And then the G minor section is, you're so mad, they have to move, right? And that really works. I'm telling you, that, that's a great story. So I've learned how you can tap into their imagination in a way that's appropriate. And then I'll tell you also, in the summer of 2020, one of my students had a grandfather pass away in um, an accident. And it was very, very sad and heart-wrenching because it was unexpected and it was an accident and it was very sad. And then just a few months later, my own mom passed away. And this particular student was working on Elegy. But when she came and we were working on Elegy, I, we talked about the fact that it's a piece about death and I made sure I was very sensitive to the way that I talked to her about it because I didn't want to open any wounds, right? But I said, this is an invitation that we have. This is um, a privilege we have as musicians to work through our feelings, through the pieces that we play. And so we worked on it and then we were working on it right after her grandpa passed away. 
And we were talking about that. And then my mom passed away and she played it for me in preparation for a recital. And it was so stunning. Because we had talked about the fact that this piece helps make sense of the feelings that come when you lose someone. And we had practiced talking about that and working on it in lessons. And so not only did she work through her own feelings about her own grandpa, she understood I had similar feelings as recently. And so she was making a place for my feelings. I could feel it in the way that she was playing. And it was one of the most beautiful, I think the most beautiful elegies I have ever heard in my life. And I will always, that it's a sacred moment to me because that, that was a moment where what we had worked on in lessons and how I had allowed her to, like I, I'd made space for her feelings and, and let her express her way, came back and blessed me <laughs> in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And it's all because line upon line, little bit at a time, we've practiced making room for her own feelings and her own expression in, in our study together. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I, it feels like the inspiring piece of music making and creating art is connecting. And when we remember that, that part of our core that is inspired and motivated by that, then we can have energy to lay brick by brick. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I had experienced that for myself many years ago when a friend of mine passed away unexpectedly. The only thing that helped my heart feel okay was sitting in the practice room and playing Elgar Cello Concerto, third movement specifically. I played that thing over and over because that's the only thing that moved the feelings through my body so that I wasn't like stuck. And I know how powerful and healing that was for me as a human being. And so I remember that and I want to give that opportunity to my students. You know, heaven forbid any of them go through any trauma that requires that. Like, I don't want that, but I also know life sometimes gives that. And so this is something that I can and can give to them because it was helpful to me. I feel like I know I could talk to you about these things all day. Um, but as we're running up to the hour, I can't believe that we're here. Um, I definitely wanted to... <laughs> Uh, ask you about this very exciting project you are working on with Duet. Could you tell us about um, what you're creating and what everyone should definitely tune into? Thank you so much for asking. This I've um, been asked by Duet to create this course for studio teachers that talks about and explores studio management. So it has nothing to do with pedagogy. So it's not anyone in any instrument who teaches any method and who's at any place along their teaching can take this course. And it's exactly the course I needed when I was establishing my studio, <laughs> right? So it's a 12 part course um, about studio management. And we are gonna discuss and develop everything from meta ideas like discovering your strengths and developing your intuition to how to craft tuition and how to deal with a calendar and how to interface with parents and how to set up your teaching space. I mean, it's big and idealistic and it's also small and pragmatic. It's got all of the things. 
Um, and the first course comes out April 1st, um, and it will have an episode airing every month. So the episodes are around a half an hour. They're um, a video, and they include homework because I'm a teacher. <laughs> I'm not going to let you get off without doing sending something home for you to do. But I think I think the homework is valuable, and it's a way um, for you to practice tuning into your own intuition. Um, and with every episode, I'll also have monthly office hours. So people who are participating in the course will get a chance not just to watch the episode, but will get a chance to talk with me and ask me questions one-on-one -on -one if they have them. Um, it's a course that is for subscribers and Duet Partner that we found in their resource um, section of their account. But for those who don't subscribe to Duet, it's also available for purchase on some other platforms. So you can find that more on the website. But I'm just very excited about this because I think the work that we do as studio teachers is, I mean, it's absolutely magical <laughs> to have a long-term relationship with a student and a family over years, right? And to watch growth from small to big, to care for someone um, and allow them to develop their creativity and allow them to develop their expression and to walk with them through such a long time of life, you're going to walk with them through difficulties and joys. I mean, we really get an opportunity to shape not just the students we work with, but their families. And then that it really does ripple out for generations. We have such a huge impact on the people that we work with. And because this work is so important, I just want to give help and support to all of it. And I promise in every single, <laughs> Every single episode, I share examples of how I failed <laughs> okay. so that you know this is like real and all the things that I'm telling you in the episodes are things that I either do because I found that they work after decades of practice or things that I absolutely don't do anymore because they just don't work. <laughs> so it's 20 years of teaching experience crystallized into these 12 episodes and I'm just so excited um, to be able to share this. And gosh, I wish I could like travel back in time and sign myself up for it, you know, so that I could be like, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Keep following your heart and your gut and it's going to be okay. And it's going to be more beautiful than you even could even can fathom. I can't wait to tune in. I want to end with a quick rapid fire. If you were to recommend a book that has really made an impact for you um, or that you've gifted to students and young teachers. Um, I think one of my favorite books is called The Parents Tao Te Ching. So it's um, taking the Tao and then kind of revamping it into for parents. And I think as teachers, we fill that role as a parental figure. And it kind of flipped a lot of my Western paradigms on their head and helped me see things in a different way and helped me kind of surrender to the flow of life and surrender to the growth of the individual in front of me. I just, I can't recommend this book enough. I love it. A recording or performance that changed your life. In the summer of 1998, I was at an orchestra camp and got to play principal cello um, as our orchestra played Stravinsky's Firebird Suite. And as I've mentioned before, I love the ballet because my family would go there, uh, attend performances a lot when I was younger. But I just, I cannot even put in words the transformation from the very beginning of the murky beginning, and then you hear the conflict between good and evil. And then at the very, very end, this like, 
destruction and it's silent and it's just been this big battle and then the the voice of hope the firebird just like comes up behind you and grows and grows and grows and I was like good will prevail <laughs> anyway I will never forget that that was an amazing moment for me um where do you draw inspiration from if you're feeling in a slump or need inspiration um I feel like saying I draw inspiration from the vision I have for myself in the future. I trust that future Brittany um, has grown in wisdom and understanding and capacity. And sometimes I imagine her reaching back and like helping me and pulling me along the way. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to help myself figure it out, you know. And what is one piece of advice that you would extend to a teacher just starting out on this journey? You have everything you need. It's right inside you. It might feel small because it might be a seed. You might have to garden it. You might have to weed it. You might have to plant it. You might have to water it, but it's all right there already. Don't look outside yourself. Look inside of yourself. It's already there. Thank you. And where, where can people connect with you? What's the best way to connect with you? Um, probably you could go to my website, gardnercellostudio.com. I have a lot of resources there, um, some blog posts or podcast episodes I've been on. And then, um, if you really want to know who I am as a teacher, just get my book. It's available on Amazon. This will help you grow. You can just search. This will help you grow by Brittany Gardner. And there it is. So thank you so much for sharing your morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor.